Great. Um, I see some familiar faces out there, uh, but for those of you that don't know me, my name is Chris Sartain, and I am a CSA minister. Um, Mr. Davis ordained me in 2012, July 5th, 2012, and uh, I live now in southern Chile where I run a meditation and yoga retreat center here in the Andes Mountains. And <clears throat> I'm the director of a yoga school along with my wife. And we offer yoga teacher trainings and yoga workshops. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about the eight limbs of yoga. I'm sure many of you are already familiar um, with the eight limbs of Patanjali. But just in case, um, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali is a very important text, not only in the Kriya Yoga tradition, but really in all yoga traditions. It was written, we think, about 200 years uh, before Christ. So it's, a, it's an ancient text. And um, in this Kriya Yoga tradition, it's very important because um, it really explains what Kriya Yoga is, and in addition, it gives us a to this experience of oneness consciousness that really is the aim of our yoga practice. In the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, yoga and samadhi are synonymous. So they mean the same thing. In other yoga texts, this isn't necessarily so. But definitely in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, this word yoga is synonymous with the word samadhi. which is the aim of our yoga practice. And yoga or samadhi is sometimes translated as oneness, oneness consciousness, union. Um, or the union of our individual consciousness with supreme or infinite consciousness. And in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, there's mention of eight limbs of yoga, Ashtanga yoga. And Ashtanga means eight limbs. Okay. Sometimes people say the, the eight steps of yoga, which is, is also okay. And I'll, I'll explain maybe the difference between 
referring to it as the eight um, limbs or the eight steps and why there is a little bit of conflict there, discrepancy. The first two limbs are the yamas and niyamas. And these are a set of guidelines, of ethical and moral guidelines that we are to follow in our lives, in our day-to-day -day lives as yogis. In the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, Patanjali says that um, future yamas and niyamas help us avoid future suffering and future drama, future conflict, future karma in our lives, which, which then helps us practice the rest of the steps more easily. There are some systems of yoga, um, for example, that say that we must perfect the yamas and niyamas before we can even begin to practice the rest of the steps of, of yoga. <laughs> but uh, that's, 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 that's quite the task. Um, so not in, in our tradition, that, that is not the case. Um, it is said that if we practice the yamas and niyamas to the best of our ability, that we will be able to meditate and practice the rest of the steps far more easily because we will have less drama and less suffering and less karma in our lives to deal with, which will, ca which will cause fewer distractions for us in the long run. So we, we practice the yamas and niyamas, which are the ethical and moral guidelines in order to avoid future problems, future suffering, future karma so that we can practice the rest of the steps of Patanjali more easily. Likewise, there's sort of a, a direct relationship between meditation and the yamas and niyamas. In other words, the more we practice meditation, the easier the yamas and niyamas are to follow. And eventually, it's automatic. So the more we meditate and the more we, the more time and devotion we give to our sadhana or spiritual practices, the easier the yamas and niyamas become for us to follow and practice in our day-to-day -day lives. So much so that eventually the yamas and niyamas become automatic and there is, there's no choice to be made. We do not have to choose to practice satya or himsa or brahmacharya or asteya or shaucha or any of these yamas and niyamas. They occur and unfold naturally in our day-to-day -day lives. And we don't have to choose between the, the devil on, on one shoulder and the angel on the, on the other shoulder. And it's just a natural process and we begin to 
behave appropriately in every moment of every day. And so that our actions and behaviors are always appropriate. And so that's, that's what the yamas and yamas really are. An ethical guideline for us to follow so that we can avoid future problems in our lives and have a more peaceful, tranquil existence so that we can practice the rest of the steps of Patanjali more easily. Now, the rest of the so-called limbs of Patanjali are steps. It, it is a logical sequence that we follow. There's an order, a logical order and a logical sequence to the rest of the limbs of Patanjali. So starting with asana, which is the third limb, that begins the, the sequence. That is the yoga sequence. It is the sequence of, of yoga that we follow in our sadhana. Now, in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, this word asana simply means a, a comfortable seated position. It's interesting, the evolution of this word asana. Um, in the Upanishads, for example, which predate the Yoga Sutras and were a, a great influence for Patanjali as he wrote the Yoga Sutras. In the Upanishads, this word asana really means your meditation seat or, your, or the cushion that you use to sit on as you meditate. In the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, the word asana comes to mean our meditation posture. And there's really very few verses about asana in the Yoga Sutras, but essentially we want to have a comfortable, upright, seated posture. So it is not recommended to, to lay down, to meditate. Uh, many of my students ask me, oh, can I, can I please lay down to meditate? I guess it's possible, but in, in our tradition, it just isn't done. And really in the yoga tradition, uh, if you're going to lay down, that's more of a relaxation technique, shavasana or yoga nidra or something like that, which is also very helpful and very, very useful. However, when we lay down, we have a tendency to become a little bit too relaxed. And <clears throat> um, there's a lot of confusion about meditation. Many people think that it is a relaxation technique. Uh, relaxation is more of a, a side effect of, of meditation. It's a wonderful side effect, and it does relax our entire system, every layer of our being, all of the koshas. But it, it is an, a very alert relaxation. So the difference between lying down and sitting up is that when we lie down, we tend to over relax and we're not alert and aware enough. So we want to be fully alert, fully present as we meditate. So it's very important to find a comfortable upright seated position that we can use to meditate. 
Now, later on in the Hatha yoga tradition, and with the, the Nath yoga and Hatha yoga tradition, this word asana came to mean all of the postures. All of the postures that uh, people practice now. Um, so oftentimes when we hear this word asana, we immediately think of downward facing dog or tree pose um, or cobra or all of the asanas that we now use and that are listed in the texts of Hatha Yoga, like the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Garanda Samhita, Shiva Samhita, etc. However, for Patanjali, that's not what he was talking about or referring to. When he spoke of asana, he was referring to a comfortable, upright, seated position that we use for the purposes of our pranayama and meditation practice. So we sit comfortably upright. That's the first step in the yoga sequence of Patanjali. Many people prefer to sit on the floor in a cross-legged position or in lotus or half lotus. And uh, that's fine. If, if people prefer that, it's not necessary. Some yogis will say that there are uh, certain energetic benefits of the lotus posture, for example, as we meditate. It's possible, although personally I've experimented with many uh, meditation postures and I don't find that um, I meditate any, any better in lotus than I do just sitting in a chair. And of course, Mr. Davis uh, sat in a chair for many decades uh, as, as part of his meditation practice. It seemed to work out pretty well for him. So uh, I, I don't think it's uh, all that necessary to sit in the floor cross-legged unless you're more comfortable that way, that, that's totally fine. If you do sit in a chair, it is recommended to keep a, a little bit of, of space in between your back and spine and your chair. And this is because panels that run along the spine called the nadis in the yoga tradition. And there are many nadis, but three in particular that are considered key or very important in our tradition, the Ida Nadi along the left side, the Pingala Nadi along the right side, and of course the Shashumna Nadi in the center that runs along our spine, our astral spine. And as we practice pranayama, especially Kriya pranayama, but even with, with Nadi Shodhana, with uh, alternate nostril breathing, we begin to feel the subtle currents and flows of prana, vital energy, in these channels. And especially during Kriya Pranayama. 
And so we want to have a little bit of space in between our back and the chair in which we meditate so that we can feel these subtle currents occurring as we practice. These currents can flow more easily, more freely. And most people have to experiment with a few different uh, meditation postures before they find something that is agreeable and that works for them well. So once we're comfortably seated, we move on to the next step, which is pranayama. Pranayama is a combination, and prana is our vital energy or astral energy, subtle energy. And ayama means expansion or movement. And so there's a, a common error in the translation of this word pranayama. Many people translate it as the, the control of prana or even breath control. However, um, when in Sanskrit, when you have a word that ends in A and another word that begins in A and you combine them, you cut off one of the A. So it's actually not a combination of the words prana and, and yama. Yama does mean control. Just as in the, the words yama and niyama. So this word yama does in fact mean control. A little bit more than that. So it's actually the expansion and movement of prana via breathing. Prana generally so that we can elevate the prana so that we can bring the prana up toward the higher chakras so that we can experience um, enlightened states of consciousness or elevated states of consciousness. Generally, the prana is not flowing freely, in, especially in the Shishumna Nadi. Um, typically, it is flowing more dominantly or predominantly in either Ida Nadi or Pingala Nadi. And this creates a state of imbalance. So you can think of a scale and when you put more weight on this side of the scale, it weighs it down and it's moving in this direction or if it has more weight on this side, it's moving in that direction. So <clears throat> this imbalance, when we have more prana in ida or pingala, either one, it creates movement. So this imbalance, energetic imbalance, creates movement, which then creates vrittis. So vrittis are fluctuations or movements or changes. that can distract us from meditation, okay? 
and in chapter one, sutra two, in Patanjali, uh, we have the famous verse, yoga chitta vritti narodha. When the vrittis or fluctuations in our being see these fluctuations or changes or vibrations that are occurring, we can experience our true nature as pure, unbounded, unlimited, infinite consciousness. And so really we practice the various steps of Patanjali to pacify, to calm, to minimize, to decrease the vrittis that are occurring in each layer of our being. In the Upanishads, in the Taittiriya Upanishad, which is an Upanishad from 900 years BC, predating Patanjali by 700 years, we have the cosmology of the five koshas or pancha kosha. And in this text, it lays out the cosmology of the five koshas, which are the five layers of our being that cover up the Atman or soul, which is pure infinite consciousness. And these five layers that cover up our being are the Anamaya kosha, which is the physical body, and it's the densest layer. It has the most density of all the layers. The next is the pranamaya kosha, which is the energetic layer of our body, or the astral body, the subtle body, composed of chakras and nadis and such. Um, next, we have the monomaya kosha, and the monomaya kosha is the mental layer of our being. And the next is the Vignanamaya Kosha. And Vignanamaya is essentially our identity or ego. And the last one is called Anandamaya Kosha. And this is the layer of bliss where we begin to experience the bliss of divine union. All, all of these layers are vibratory. They all have vibration, they all vibrate. The Atman or the soul, pure consciousness, does not vibrate. It has no vibration. So in every layer of our being, in all five of the koshas, it is possible to experience vrittis or vibrations that distract us when we are trying to concentrate and meditate. And so um, sometimes the word chitta is translated in that verse as mind. But um, really we need a more holistic uh, translation or concept for chitta. Because as we meditate, we do not only experience vrittis in the mental layer and the monomaya kosha, we can experience vrittis or vibrations or distractions in the physical body, 
if our shoulder hurts or our back hurts or we have a headache, those are physical vrittis that we can experience, okay? Likewise, vrittis or energetic vrittis that occur in our pranamaya kosha, which is the energetic layer of our being. So chitta, when we translate it as mind, it's really not all-inclusive. We need to be thinking about all five koshas, all five layers of, of our being, and the fact that we can experience vrittis in any of those layers as we meditate. Because all of those layers are vibratory. They're all vibrating. Everything in maya or manifestation is vibratory. It's all vibrating. It's all moving, changing constantly. Never stops. And through deep meditation, superconscious meditation, we can experience ourselves as that which does not vibrate, that which does not change, that which has no vibration, that which doesn't move. And so we actually practice each step in Patanjali's sequence to minimize and decrease and pacify the vrittis that are occurring in each layer of our being, one at a time. It's a beautiful science. Um, it's very logical, it makes a lot of sense. And we are able to repeat the results. If we practice these things regularly, we will have uh, repeated results, which is very scientific, isn't it? So we begin with asana, okay? Now, if you want to include some other asanas beforehand to relax the body, especially the spine and the back, which tends to tense up or get tight as we meditate and sit for long periods of time, you should do that. However, it is not necessary to practice an hour-long, complicated sequence of asanas in order to prepare the body to meditate. You can just do some simple stretching for 10 minutes uh, to prepare the spine and body to sit for a long period of time. So we start with asana. To relax, to calm, to pacify, to minimize the vrittis, occurring in the anamaya kosha, or the body, the physical layer of our being. Then we move to pranayama, and we can practice some pranayama techniques to minimize or decrease the vrittis that are occurring in our pranamaya kosha, in the energetic layer of our being, which would be energetic happening things or emotions. Emotions are energetic in nature. Calm and pacify the energetic layer of our being, the pranamaya kosha. Also, as we practice pranayama, we activate the side of our nerves. And when we practice Nadi Shodhana, alternate nostril breathing, 
we can balance the flows that are occurring in the Ida Nadi and the Pingala Nadi, okay? Typically, we have one nostril that is dominant for two or three hours, and then it changes. Every two or three hours, our dominant nostril changes. In other words, we breathe deeper out of the right nostril for two or three hours, and then it changes to the left nostril for two or three hours. This is always occurring. You can witness this for, for yourself. And this means that we have our prana flowing predominantly in the Ida Nadi or the Pingala Nadi. Ida is our, our feminine, lunar, somatic uh, side. And Pingala is the masculine, solar, Agni side. So we want to occurring in the nostrils and also in Ida and Pingalanadi. Because when we have balance and equilibrium, we have stillness. So where there is balance, where there is, there is no movement. And so we practice pranayama techniques to create this energetic stillness and this energetic balance so that there are fewer vrittis occurring in our pranamaya kosha and our energetic layer or astral body. We are also able through the practices of pranayama, especially kriya pranayama, we are able to bring our energy, our prana and attention to the higher chakras. Normally, in our day-to-day -day lives, our attention and prana is uh, in the lower chakras. Especially now with everything that's happening in, in the world, there are a lot of people, probably the vast majority, that uh, seem to be existing in, in their lower chakras. And so through this practice of Kriya Pranayama, we are able to elevate the prana and draw it up into the higher centers so that we can um, elicit higher states of consciousness and awareness, elevated or enlightened states of consciousness and awareness. So that is another purpose of Pranayama. So we practice Pranayama. And then the next step in Patanjali's sequence is Pratyahara. Now, Pratyahara has various uh, translations. Um, the retirement of the senses, for example. But I, I prefer the internalization of attention and prana. The internalization of attention and prana. Generally, our attention is flowing outward toward the senses and the objects of the senses, and also toward our thoughts, desires, emotions, memories, etc. So our attention and prana, which are, are linked, um, are typically flowing outward, and we're outward uh, directed. And so we want to reverse this flow 
and internalize the attention and awareness. Pratyahara follows organically and naturally. In other words, we, we don't have to practice a specific technique to internalize our attention and awareness if we practice pranayama properly and correctly. It just follows organically and naturally after our practice of pranayama, especially Kriya pranayama. And uh, Lahiri Mahashaya talks about this in his, his commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, for example, that you know, if we, if we practice uh, pranayama correctly, essentially pratyahara just occurs, just happens naturally, organically, without effort. However, there are some things that we can do to improve our practice and experience of pratyahara. For example, it is recommended to meditate in a dark room, a darkened space, and also a quiet space without distractions so that we can more easily internalize our attention. It's not a coincidence that yogis uh, for thousands of years have practiced in caves. For anyone who has ever been in a cave, um, one of the first things that that you notice is that it's really quiet there's no noise and there's no wind blowing and it's dark uh, <clears throat> so the yogis did this in order to practice pratyahara which is the internalization of attention awareness prana it's far easier to practice this in a cave yeah, we're in a quiet, dark place without distractions. So that's pratyahara. The next step is dharana. And dharana means concentration. However, it is typically associated with... For example, observing the breath, mantra, the repetition of a mantra, visualizations, you know, some traditions like to visualize a specific yantra or sacred symbol to concentrate. In our tradition, uh, there are various forms of dharana. For example, the, the inner light or jyoti, we can merge our attention and awareness fully with this inner light as a technique of dharana or concentration. Uh, omkar kriya, we're listening for om, uh, also known as nada yoga or shabda yoga. We can listen intently for this sound or sacred primordial vibration and merge our attention and awareness fully with it as a means uh, to concentrate. Some people um, like to stare at a candle flame with open eyes. Did uh, meditating. Uh, I meditated 
at the Atlanta Soto Zen Center when I was 15. Thing about go try it out, and um, they they meditate with open eyes. They keep their eyes open as they meditate. Stare concentration just to stare at a wall, <laughs> which uh, didn't appeal to me. At Fifteen years old. So and I didn't have anything to compare it to. And um, at any rate, so that, that's another form of dharana that one can practice. So we can practice dharana with our, with our eyes open as well. And so we use these concentration techniques and calm and relax and minimize the vritti that are occurring in the monomaya kosha, or the mental layer of our being. But the key is that we use the technique until it is no longer necessary. Now, what does that mean? We use the technique until we experience a clear, superconscious, largely thought-free state of pure awareness where we can concentrate without the need of a technique to concentrate. So many, uh, talk to many students, they, they tell me that they're meditating and ask them what they're doing. Oh, well, uh, you know, I, I repeat a mantra for 20 minutes or um i observe my my breath you know 15 minutes or um or i practice with a, a guided relaxation or a guided vi visualization which is fine which is all well and good but that's not meditation so we have to understand that dharana is not jhana which is the next step which is meditation super conscious meditation a technique is not meditation. Yeah, there's a lot of confusion around that. Um, mantra is not meditation. Watching the breath is not meditation. These, these are techniques of dharana or concentration, and they're very useful, but to a point, up to a point. So we want to practice with these concentration techniques so that we pacify and minimize the vrittis occurring in the monomaya kosha or the mental layer of our being so that we can concentrate fully without the need of a technique. Now this requires practice, sometimes months of diligent, devoted sadhana and practice to begin to experience these thought-free, clear states of consciousness that occur as the technique fades away organically of its own volition. So we never want to force the technique away. It's an organic natural process that occurs as we use the technique, it begins to fade away and become unnecessary 
and we are left in this beautiful, peaceful, tranquil, uh, peaceful state of pure awareness where we can concentrate without the need to do anything or use anything. Sometimes um, the next step, jhana, is translated as uninterrupted concentration, meaning it's pure concentration without a technique. Yeah. Now, especially when we start, especially for beginners, when they begin meditating, they may experience a few seconds of thought-free awareness, and then the vrittis return, and the, the distractions return. Well, then you have to return to your technique again for a time. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. So we use the technique, dharana, until we experience jhana, which is the super conscious state of thought-free, pure awareness. And then perhaps the vrittis and distractions return, and we return ourselves with minimal effort, again, to whatever technique we're using for a time, until we again experience this super conscious, transcendental state of pure awareness, pure existence being. And it's like that. So we're, we're, we kind of float in and out of dharna and jhana, dharna and jhana, as we practice. And that's okay. That's, that's normal. Now, with practice, we can begin to experience um, these thought-free states uh, uh, for much longer periods. They, they last much longer. And we no longer need these concentration techniques to get us to a place where we can meditate. But typically this takes months, if not years of, of practice. And so dharana is concentration, usually with a technique of concentration. And then we experience the next step, which is, which is jhana. And so we use pratyahara and dharana to, to transcend the manomaya kosha or the mental layer. Now, jhana we use to transcend the vignanamaya kosha, which is the layer of identity or ego, this sense of separation, this sense of individuality, this sense of I am Chris. It's this, this false self that we are identified with that is the cause of all of our problems. <laughs> we, uh, we, we identify with the name and the form and the body and all of its likes and dislikes and our job and uh, face and so on and so forth. And this is the beginning of all of our, our suffering and ignorance, isn't it? 
And so we practice all of these techniques so that we can reach a state where we are no longer identified with this false self that is the cause of all of the problems in our lives. We, we suffer because we are identified with the person that suffers. We experience suffering because we identify with the person that is suffering. When we are able to correct this error, there's no suffering. We're no longer identified with this temporary person, this temporary role that we're currently playing. And so in these thought-free states of superconsciousness, jhana, many wonderful things begin to happen. Um, our lives improve. We're generally more peaceful, tranquil, less reactive. Um, sometimes we begin to see an inner light, not just when we're meditating, but almost all the time. The jyoti. We begin to hear more strongly, more clearly, the om vibration. Our brain can begin to produce something called soma. Uh, or amrita that we can begin to feel in every cell of the body. And it's like a subtle ambrosia or ecstasy that you can feel nearly all the time. And this comes about as a result of repeated superconscious states. The next step or final step in the eight limbs or eight steps of Ashtanga yoga is samadhi or yoga or oneness consciousness, or union. There are various, I should say also that there are various levels of superconsciousness that one can experience. There are various levels or stages of jhana that one can experience. Uh, many refined, subtle stages. Likewise with samadhi, um, levels or stages of samadhi also that we can experience. Uh, one is savikalpa samadhi, which is typically translated as samadhi with support or supported samadhi. In this state, we do lose identity with the false self, but we experience union with something with an object, for example, the ohm vibration or the inner light. And then in one moment we experience, I, I am ohm. And, and, there, and, then, and there's no identification with Chris, there's only this union with an object of our contemplation. It doesn't have to be ohm or the inner light. It can be anything, really. That is not the ultimate aim of our practice. 
However, it is useful because we do begin to sever this identity with uh, the false self. And there is no sense of separation, which is really nice. Beyond that is Nirvikalpa Samadhi, which is Samadhi without support, where we experience union, oneness consciousness, real oneness, real union, where there is no subject or object. And of course, the mind cannot understand how, how can that be so? How can there, of course, there's separation in between me as the subject and whatever I'm experiencing as the object. So, samadhi, in other words, uh, it cannot be described with words, but it is the ultimate aim of our practice. But we should note that it, it is a temporary experience. Unfortunately, it does not last. Sometimes it lasts for a few seconds, sometimes for a few minutes, if we're very lucky, a few hours. For very, very advanced yogis, it could last days. But typically, always, really, we return to our identity or identification with this smaller, limited sense of self. So Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras, for example, says that um, samadhi is not permanent, lasting enlightenment or self realization is um, repeated episodes of samadhi. So in other words, he says that we need to repeat this experience of samadhi often to experience a more stable, permanent, lasting state of self-knowing, self-realization, which is the ultimate aim of our practice. And, and in samadhi, we, we transcend all of the koshas, all of the vibratory layers of our pure, unbounded, omnipresent consciousness that does not vibrate, does not change, that does not suffer, and that does not die. <laughs> 